Okay, you go, to, you go to the hospital. When you get to the hospital, I'm not talking about you're sick, but you're visiting somebody or something, you know. And you hear them play the lullaby in the hospital. You hear the, the sound of the lullaby. Now, I, I, honestly, I did go to Jim and I asked him, I said, could you play that? But I'm going to tell you the truth. It started making me sleepy even while I was listening to him. And I didn't want you guys going to sleep, at least not to sleep early. Uh, so that what happens here, you don't go to sleep during the sermon. But regardless of that, is that what does that, what does it mean when they play that, uh, that lullaby? What does it mean when they play that lullaby? Baby has been born. And I, you know what you realize what that means? That means that the parents, there's probably new parents, not always are there new parents, but a lot of times it's new parents. New parents who've gotten themselves into something that they don't have a clue what is about to happen. You know that's what happens. I mean, that song, it's, I know there's other words to it, but to me it, it says, you know, get no sleep, get no sleep, your baby is crying, you know, or something like that. You know, that's what it means. And so parents get up because they, their child is crying and, and life, their life changes. I mean, that thing that you were going to do that you did before you had a child, you said, let's go get pizza. You said, I'll get the car keys and you were gone and you got pizza. And then what happens when you, you had the baby? You had to get all the stuff together. And you people that have been parents, you know what it's like. You said, you, we have to get all this stuff together in order to take this little child, this one person with us to go get pizza. And two hours later, you're just too tired to go get pizza. You know, because you're trying to collect all the stuff that you need in order to get there with that child. But what we do as parents is, is that we work on our children in such a way, not only do we prepare for them so that they give them enough food and such, but we want them to mature. We want them to grow up. We want them to be at a point in our lives that they're not living in our homes with us anymore, right? I'm not trying to put anybody down right now. I'm just saying that's kind of the case. We want to be able to, to say they can make it on their own, make their own families and do that sort of thing. And that's called maturity and it's a responsibility that we have. Now, wouldn't you imagine that God, if he had someone who had come to know him, that is, they've been born again, that God would want that person to grow up in to a maturity as well. I mean, quite frankly, God wants his children to grow up. He wants his children to grow up. And that would be, that should be something that we just go, of course. Of course he wants his children to grow up. It would be weird if he didn't. And so he had a plan. I mean, from the very beginning, amazingly, he had a plan from the very beginning that he wanted to use in order for us to grow up. Now, not in such a way that he's going to force us into this, because there's plenty of people that you know, they've been a Christian for a long time. They're not any more mature than they were just about the day they became Christians. They're not any more spiritually mature at this. But God's plan was simply this. He says the Holy Spirit comes to inhabit the person at his or her conversion. He said, really, this is what you're going to have an experience in. Now, this, this coming of the Holy Spirit is greater in some people's lives than others. It's not that the Holy Spirit is greater. But I've always heard from people, they say, well, you know, I've been a Christian all my life. And in reality, that's not true. I mean, you can't be born again if you haven't been born. You understand what I'm trying to say. You have to be born in order to be born again. Uh, but there's, the Holy Spirit does come in, and their, their lifestyle doesn't change drastically because of that, because their lifestyle may not have been that bad in the first place. 
But see, we look at the Holy Spirit and we say, well, why did the Holy Spirit come in? Well, one reason is the Holy Spirit was promised to inhabit believers. Holy Spirit was actually promised to Jesus himself would promise that the Holy Spirit's going to come. It says in John chapter 14, verse 16, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. I want you to make a point of that, looking at that word, helper. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It is appropriate that he would call him helper. What we need to recognize is, is that you're not on your own. You're not on your own as a believer, even as a new believer. You're not on your own, and you're not going to cause your own growth by yourself. Now, how far do you think a new baby would get, actually a new baby would get, if, they didn't have, if that child doesn't have anyone that is going to take care of that child? I mean, we hear stories in the news sometimes of, of children that have been completely neglected, and, and a lot of times those children die. I mean, do you realize that if you don't hug and hold on to a baby, a child will die just by itself. You don't have to not feed it and all of that kind of stuff. If you just don't hold it and, 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 and uh, nurture that child, that child will die on its own. That's one of the things that uh, is necessary to hold on. But what we have here, that's just the physical side of things. A believer has a spiritual element of growth. The Holy Spirit is the helper that grows the person to maturity. And, you know, there's just some things that you just can't do on your own. And I don't care how hard you try at this. Growing to maturity as a Christian is not going to happen unless the Holy Spirit works in your life. Now, you know that several weeks ago I got surgery on my back. What happened to my back was is that I had not only had I crushed a disc, I had it had actually had broken into pieces, if you can imagine that, and I realized it was not going to get better on its own. Nothing was going to cause that that uh, disc to get better on its own. So I got on Amazon and I got a book, and let me tell you about this book. It was called Performing Your Own Back Surgery: How to Fuse a Disc with a Knife, Heavy Duty Wire, and Silly Putty. And I got some, some uh, mirrors and some lights, and I got behind myself, and I, you know that's crazy, don't you? You absolutely know that's crazy. In fact, anybody tells you that they did their own back fusion surgery, they are also nuts. That's one of the things. They've got to be crazy in the first place. But the other side of it is it's just not possible to do. So what did I do? I had a surgeon, a surgeon that did that surgery for me, Correct. Well, the Holy Spirit is the surgeon that you need for your own spiritual growth. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. And for receiving the Holy Spirit is essential for salvation as well. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost and these people fell under conviction, the Holy Spirit was there. You realize what was going on there. You know, they had tongues of flame is what it said. And, and, and Peter is preaching and he's preaching along. What did these people say? What must we do to be saved? They cried out for this. And in Acts 2.38, Peter replied, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right there, very much at the point of salvation. This is what is going to happen. The Holy Spirit being a gift, not something that you are going to earn whatsoever. You don't earn gifts. You earn wages. You don't earn gifts. 
And so, and you're not going to be able to bring the Holy Spirit on yourself. Now, some people want to say, well, it's that commitment that you make at that time. And there is a commitment that you make. But we don't know about the commitment in reality. We can say, well, I commit myself to following Jesus Christ. But we don't know about the commitment in reality until we actually commit ourselves in reality. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? And what happens is, is that I can tell you all day long that I'm going to run a marathon. But I don't know that I'm going to run a marathon until I run a marathon. You hear what I'm saying? So you actually have to do it. So why is it that we have that commitment and the Holy Spirit comes in? Well, it's, you know, here's the deal. God gives that, gives you the Holy Spirit based on what he knows. He knows that you're going to follow through with this. It's like in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles, where the, uh, the three armies come against Judah. And Jehoshaphat calls a prayer meeting. Everybody's praying. This guy named Jehaziel, the spirit of the Lord. It says there, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. You understand? Read that scripture very clearly. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. And, and, and he said this. He said that the Lord had told him that the battle does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And so the Lord was giving them the gift of victory. Now, did they have that victory yet? Mm, yes. No. I could say both of those. They hadn't seen the victory yet, but they had the victory. Why did they have the victory? Because God said it was, he's going to give them the victory. That's, that, that was all he needed. And they believed. And when you believe, you act on that belief. Now, what was the, the proof of their belief? They put the choir out front. I have never seen battles where they put the choir out front. I've never seen, you know, at, at, uh, in any of the uh, D-Day, they didn't have, there was no choir out front. You understand? And in this case, they put the choir out front and they had them singing. And then they marched toward their enemies, not away from their enemies, but toward their enemies. And what does it say in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 22? And when they began to sing and praise, you see those words there? And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. And when they began to sing and praise, you realize that they believed it. God had already, but here's the thing. The timeline's kind of hard to follow. You see, the reason is, is that what we see in a moment, the Lord has already seen. The Lord already knew this was going to happen. He knew that. He said this was going to happen. And what we see him doing, he's already done. And when we have that, we realize that the Holy Spirit has come in based on that commitment. And reality is, is that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to him. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He is present in there. And one of his purposes is to seal your salvation, to seal it away. It cannot be taken away. See, the Holy Spirit identifies us as believers. He makes us identify. And here's the thing. In your life, I know that people are always, they're doubting their salvation. Let me show you how you shouldn't doubt your salvation because the Holy Spirit should be there. It says in Romans chapter 8 verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit... That we are the children of God. The Spirit of God. You see what it says? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
And those who walk by the Spirit are constantly assured that they have the Spirit within them. See, so what we do is, is that we, in this, when we're assured, when we're walking with Him, see, we set our minds on the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 6, it says to set the mind on the spirit, the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And what happens to those individuals who are walking in the spirit, is that they're going along in the spirit, being constantly assured that they, they're belonging to the Lord. What you find is, is that they've set their minds on the spirit and they have life and they have peace. Now, there are two reasons that I can think of, even good reasons that you should, you could doubt your salvation. One is that you have no assurance from the Spirit because you have no salvation. You can doubt your salvation then. If I'm always afraid, I'm going to make somebody doubt their salvation that might be saved. I don't want to do that. Never want to do that. That's not my place. That's not what the Holy Spirit would have me do. But I can tell you that if you've been doubting your salvation, you continue to doubt your salvation. You can't ever seem to get beyond the doubt of your salvation. It could be possibly that you do not have that salvation. And you've heard me say this before, just simply saying a prayer, simply walking down an aisle, that may be a superstitious act, but it is not salvation. Salvation is a commitment that is made, a commitment that God already knows about. The other is, is that you are not walking in the Spirit and therefore cannot hear the Spirit's witness. That's what happens with with people. You don't, you cannot hear the Spirit's witness. Why? Because you're not walking with the Spirit. You're so far away. So which is it? Have you ever had the, uh, the, have you ever known that you had the Spirit's witness that you are the child of God? I mean, if you have, then the Spirit who never lies is always telling you the truth and you are for sure saved. You know, and you can't refute it with your own feelings. You know, when you buy a piece of property, that is you completely pay for it, you get a deed. You understand that? You get a deed. And that... Uh, and, and typically what happens is, is that that deed shows that the property is yours. And typically what people do is they put that deed in a safety deposit box in a bank, don't they? They stick it in there, keep it safe. And the only time you get it out is for, why, for what reasons? One, to prove you own the property. That's one reason. And the other one is, is that you're going to sell the property. <laughs> There's only two reasons that you would want to have that deed. So a lot of people think that they hold the deed to their own salvation. You do not hold the deed to your own salvation. You realize this. You see, we have our deed, our salvation. It is held in the hands of the Holy Spirit who is God. And he doesn't keep it in a safety deposit box. He keeps it in heaven for us. And so that when... Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. He talks about the salvation. He talks about it in this way. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is absolutely safe. Now, here is the truth, folks. Anytime you need the Holy Spirit to show you the deed, he will. Anytime you say, Holy Spirit... I'm not sure I'm a believer. And if it's there, he will, as I said before, he will, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He will show it to you. It's because what happens to us is is the, the faith that we have, faith works by the spirit. In fact, it's working through us by the spirit. 
First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10 says, But by this grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. This grace that we've been given at salvation, this grace that God has come and convicted us, this grace in which we have received the Holy Spirit in this, this grace continues to work in us and continues to change us from the inside out. And so it is the, the, the work of the, of the Holy Spirit that, that has given us this grace. We didn't earn one bit of it. And the only thing that we have, if we have a virtue at all, our only virtue is obedience. It is obedience to what the Holy Spirit has told us to do. And it isn't even the power to do that with. It is simply that we have complied with what the Holy Spirit has told us to do. Now you'll note that when you look at that 1 Corinthian passage that there was work that is involved. Yes, it is work, but it is not a virtue because that, that work is still done by the power and the strength and the, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It is the submission to the will of God through the Spirit that we actually work. Now there are two dangers that, mis- that a misunderstanding of the work of the Spirit could bring about. One is that we act like pre-programmed or programmed rather robots that do nothing at all without a direct command. And what that means is, is that we said, well, until the Spirit tells me to absolutely get up from this chair and go do it, I'm not going to go do it. Now, what really happens in reality is that the the Spirit sometimes gives us orders. It says, go do this. And doesn't even give us the method to do it with. And says, go do this. And so what we do is we we try to do it. Sometimes we even do the wrong thing. And you say, well, well, that wouldn't be the work of the Spirit because sometimes we get it wrong. No, the the answer to that is, is that that's part of growth. And God allows us to grow through that process because God is not looking for us to become perfect. And I'm going to preach on that in a few weeks. But quite frankly, we're not, we're not expected to be perfect. We're, not, we're expected to be compliant. We're expected to be obedient. And, see, and so what happens is that's what we really do. We get up and we get going at it. But the other side of it is this. The other is that we do too much. What we try to do is we try to say, look, I think we need to do this. The Holy Spirit hasn't said we need to do any of that kind of stuff. And we say, well, that's what I think we can do. If we could just do this, we'd do something that is, I think is going to be greater. And you know what that is? That is is um, the audacity to tell God that you can improve on his plan. Think about that a little bit. The audacity to tell God, I can improve on your plan. That, that, That even blows me away to even say those words. So what happens is, is that we don't, we don't go and, and we don't sit around and wait for something to happen. But the other side of it is we don't go out and try to make things happen that we've never been told to do either. On the other side, you've got a balance in there. And so the, the works of the Spirit require walking by the Spirit. You're walking along with the Spirit of God. And believe me, you will not have to worry about what you need to do. If you're walking along with the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.15 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. The flesh is always after the love of the world. It is those physical pleasure that possessions, which also usually includes money. 
And it also includes, you know, he puts it there, pride. Pride usually includes power. The physical pleasure will delay and disobey the work of the Spirit. The possessions will distract you from the work of the Spirit. And the pride will cause you to take over the work of the Spirit and say, look what I did. Look what I did. I did it all. Remember that the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And the flesh, the flesh will even try to convince you that you're walking with the Spirit. When in reality, you're not. You can measure whether you're walking by the Spirit by examining the fruit being produced. Remember last week I talked to you about the fruit of the Spirit. Remember there's one fruit, nine characteristics of that fruit. In love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nine characteristics. I think that a lot of people, what they want to do is say, I, I, I got this one here. And they think they've got the fruit of the Spirit. That's just one characteristic. One characteristic doesn't make the fruit in reality. And you mislead yourself and you claim the fruit of the Spirit. That is actually an act of pride, in fact, of that. But it says in the scripture that we're to be filled with the Spirit. And if we're going to be filled with the Spirit, you know, then we're going to have to comply with the Spirit. It says you must be filled with the Spirit if you want to walk in the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 it says, Do not get drunk with wine for this is debauchery. This is where Baptists have usually stopped. And they're really scared of that thing about after that. Let's just stop on that scripture part and they go right there. But the biggest deal is the next part of this. Don't get drunk. I got that. But be filled with the Spirit. In other words, it gives you an, an idea. Get drunk on the Spirit. It's really hard for us to understand and to do that in a sober way. That last phrase is a passive imperative. In other words, be filled with the Spirit means you've got a command to do it, but you can't do it to yourself. It means that you've got to remove the barriers and allow the Spirit to come in because the Spirit already wants to come in. Now, being filled with the Spirit should not be that mysterious. I believe that many of you have probably been filled with the Spirit, but you did not even know it. And you know, that may be the only way you can be filled with the Spirit. Because, quite frankly, if you knew you were... You might get a little prideful in it anyway, and then that would be the way it is. You see, but what happens to you? Let's say, for example, you've come on a Sunday or you've had one of those mountaintop experiences. You went on a retreat. You went on something, and they had a mountaintop. You got filled with the Spirit. Then what had happened to you the next day? We threw you back into the world. We threw you right back into the world. And what happened to you is, is that you were filled, but you leaked. You started to leak out the Spirit. See, the world seeps in. And the Spirit leaks out so that spiritual things will not interest you eventually. And you're wondering, how could I be full of the Spirit? And so we say, oh, that was just a psychological thing. No, it wasn't. It was the fact that there was the Spirit, and now the Spirit has leaked out of you. And your spiritual growth starts to stagnate. You're like in a horror movie. You ever been in a horror movie with, you know, the boogeyman or whatever that creature or whatever is going around? It's slinking around the shadows and the only, the person on the screen doesn't know that it's there, but everybody in the theater does. You ever been in the movie? I've actually been in a movie where they've, 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 somebody's yelled out, turn around, you idiot. You know they can't hear you when you do that. But what happens here is, is that you're like that. It's coming and it's seeping in on you and you don't even notice what's going on and it goes like this and I know this because I have seen this happen many many times the first thing happens is you start becoming sporadic at church 
And it becomes, I mean, the reason beginning with it is sometimes very benign. You just went on vacation or maybe you got sick or you got... But what you did was is that you stayed out another week or two more weeks or whatever it was after that vacation, after that sickness or whatever it was, you stayed out again. Maybe you went and played golf one Sunday and you said, hey, this was a lot of fun. And you did it three more Sundays after that. You start doing that sort of thing. And if you have a place of service, the only time you will show up at church is when you are called on for that place of service. So if you teach Sunday school once every six weeks, that's the only time you'll come about once every six weeks. And you start losing contact with the people and you start losing contact with the church. And your Sunday school class contacts you. But you've always got a good excuse. You start saying, well, I had to take a week off, or I was just so tired from the night before, or whatever it is. And so each week and each time they contact you, you have a great excuse. And that keeps working until they stop contacting you. And the reason they quit contacting you is because you always have a great excuse. You know, and then the craziest thing happens is that Something happens in your life and you start blaming the preacher because he wasn't there for you in the crisis. You don't even know, he may not even know that it has happened. And you don't even know how many crises there are always going on in a church. There's more than one. It's not just your crisis that is going on. And so you say, these people, they don't contact me at the church anymore. They don't care about people at the church. A preacher doesn't care about me at the church. And you know, so you run down the church and you still claim you love Jesus. Let me explain something to you. You are saying you love Jesus while you are dissing his bride. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. I mean, if a man loves his wife... And you say something bad about his wife, what happens? Does he say, oh, that's okay? Or do you have a problem? You have a problem. So don't start telling me that you love Jesus while you are dissing his his bride. See, eventually you will not have any area of service because you don't even go to church anywhere anymore. And I have seen that happen over and over again. I have seen people that we have ordained as deacons that we cannot find anymore. I have seen people that have been fabulous Sunday school teachers. I've seen all of that happen. And what has happened to them is the spirit leaked out and the world seeped in and filled them up. Paul addressed such a group of believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1. He said, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you you were not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? See, these people had not matured in their faith and they were acting like immature people. And people who haven't matured in their faith, they look like the people who do not know Christ because they're acting like people who do not know Christ. But here's what happens. That person who genuinely does not know Jesus, that person that is outside, looks at that person who went to church all the time, still has the bumper stickers on their car, says, I praise Jesus, but I don't go to church on everything that they've got. 
And how they act toward them, which was not in the fruit of the Spirit, not with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. They don't act like that. And so they look at that person, they say, you know what, if that's what a Christian is, I can act like better than that without being a Christian. I don't need this. This is what happens. And what we need for these people who have no maturity or have had a maturity at one time in their life and they have allowed the Spirit to leak out of them and never asked to see the Spirit come into their life again and they're out there in the world acting like the world, we need them to come to their senses just like that prodigal son did. Need to come to their senses. For they have very little assurance of their salvation based on their lives. And they, you can't even find their commitment to Christ right now. You know, and I've, I've seen you guys. You were wonderful people, but sometimes you get hoodwinked. Let me tell you how you get hoodwinked. You go visit that person. And they still know some of those scriptures. And they'll tell you about the Bible. And they'll tell you, they'll, they'll say things. And I've heard people come back, well, oh, no, they don't go to church. But boy, do they know their Bibles. Let me tell you something very clearly here. God isn't that interested in what you know. He's, he's interested in who you are. Tell me who you are. Tell me who you are about how you walk with Jesus. That's the, the thing that, that is important there. Tell me who you are. You see, do you have the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Are you a different person than you were when you became a Christian? Because if you're still exactly the same, there's very little evidence that you have in your life that you've come to know Christ. Because the evidence is there is that I'm a different person than I used to be. I said I'd never tell you this story again, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. A few years ago, uh, well, long, many, it's many years ago now, I bought a used lawnmower. Don't buy a used lawnmower. I'm going to tell you right now, don't do that. But I bought a used lawnmower. You know I'm cheap. You know, that's, I'm not saying I'm thrifty. I'm cheap. That's really a, that's a real truth. And so I'm mowing the grass in my yard, and I go around on the yard, and, and, the, and the thing, I mean, it runs out of gas. That's no big deal. All lawnmowers run out of gas, so I put gas in it. And I go around the, the deal, and a wheel falls off. And so I go and get some bolts and stuff, and I put the wheel back on. And then I'm coming around the yard, and, I, and I'm not joking with you guys. The engine came loose from the, the housing. And so I had to stop the lawnmower, and it wasn't for that accelerator cable. It, it would have been the engine spinning around and not the deal. But anyway, so I, I put it in there, and, I go, and, and this is not a joke. I'm, I'm really telling you the truth. So I get the engine all bolted in and everything. I come around the corner, and the handle broke off. And so I had the top part of the handle, which was two loops that came up like this. And the, I had to take... And so what happens is, is that now I've only got a lawnmower that's this tall. And I'm pushing this lawnmower around the yard. And, and the thing about it is, is my wife looks out there and she says... Why don't you get a crowbar in your wallet and go buy a lawnmower? And I said, this is no joke. I said, but this lawnmower builds so much more character in me. I'm going to tell you, I realized at that moment in my life that before in my life, before I became a Christian, I'd have gone and bought a sledgehammer and beat that lawnmower until it looked like a meteorite. And at this, I was actually laughing out there. And I said, you know what? There must be a change in my life. Do you know a change in your life? For the evidences to your faith are the work of the Spirit in your life. 
and how your life has changed because you walked in the Spirit. That's the evidence of your faith. And so can you say that you're different at your core of who you are than what you were before? Have you really truly crossed over to that faith in Christ? Do you need to have an act of obedience that maybe the Lord has told you to do and you've never done it? You see, do you need to be filled with the Spirit? In a moment, I'll offer an invitation. That invitation may be that you would come up here and, and kneel and pray for somebody. Maybe you've got somebody to pray for. Maybe you need to pray for yourself. I don't know. Maybe you need to say, I need to, I need to trust in Jesus. I have no assurance of my salvation. Or maybe you need to say, well, I, I'm saved, but I've never, I've never been baptized. We, we, we've got to have, we've got to have obedience here in this. It's not going to save you, but obedience is necessary. Or maybe you need a church home. I don't know what it might be, but I real, you realize that you're never going to go forward with the Spirit until you go forward with the Spirit. So pray with me.